Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you guys are doing very well. And once again, we are already back with another race preview. The third leg of our trip ahead following the summer break leads us to Monza, no less. The Italian Grand Prix, one of the races that I, a self-confessed for Ferrari fan, for those of you that follow this show quite a lot, will know that this is one of the most exciting weekends in my particular F1 calendar of the I'm sure many of you will probably agree that there's not many atmospheres quite like the one where we see with the Tifosi at Monza. Will they be celebrating joy at Ferrari win or will they be disappointed as they may have been owing to recent form? We will have to wait and see. But joining us on this episode and for those of you may already recognize my very special guest if you're watching this on the DNF1 YouTube channel, we have the brilliant commentator and broadcaster for not only Formula One, but also for IndyCar as well, which is quite appropriate given some of the topics that we're going to be discussing on this episode. We have the brilliant Tom Gaymore. Tom, first of all, thank you so much for giving up your time to come on the DNF1 podcast today. How are you doing? Yes, well, that's quite the welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really good, actually, although it's, it's gone a bit dark and gloomy in here, so we might have a few cracks of thunder and lightning as the thunderstorms roll through southwest London at the moment. So do excuse me, I can't control the weather. But yeah, I'm really good. I'm in the midst of a, a double header. It's the two final rounds for IndyCar, of course. And I'm heavily involved in, in those two weekends. So last weekend and this weekend. So all eyes on who's going to be crowned champion at the end of Sunday night. Of course, Laguna Seca this weekend. Five drivers head into that final weekend of the IndyCar season with a chance of clinching the crown. Yes, absolutely exciting stuff. And obviously, as we were talking a little bit off air before, and I'm self-admittedly not the biggest IndyCar fan. I've followed a few of the races this season, mostly tuning for the Indy 500. But of course, for the benefit of our listeners that focus mostly on Formula One, as I self-admittedly have done, where can they tune in to watch this uh, finale to the IndyCar season? Well, it's Sky Sports F1, so I fill in the advertising breaks and do a top and tail around the show. Our NBC colleagues bring the coverage. They've got a wonderful broadcast team headed up by Lee Diffie, James Hinchcliffe and T-Bell, Townsend Bell, as he's known. And they go to a lot of commercial breaks. So I need to come in and, and fill that dead air. So at the top, at the 
end of the show and then in the middle. I think we had 16 commercial breaks last weekend. So that's where you can watch the action. You can hear me. I'll try and explain it as best I can. But it's going to be a good one this weekend. And it's very, very difficult, IndyCar, to predict who's who's going to win the weekend, who's going to win the championship. Will Power, who leads the championship, he's only won one race this year. And Alex Pelot, who is the reigning champion, I think his average finishing position was 5.6 last year. So it's all about consistency as well as outright speed. Yeah, absolutely brilliant stuff. And of course, really exciting. I'm definitely going to be tuning into that after the uh, Italian Grand Prix, of course. I'll be looking forward to seeing how that one goes down. But yeah, very, very interesting battle. I can't remember the last time F1 had a finale where five drivers could potentially win the World Championship. I think one of our beloved followers will have to dive into the F1 archives and pull that one out. Uh, Or maybe I'll ask Sean Kelly, F1's virtual stat man. He'll probably have the answer for that one as well. But Obviously, Tom, since we've got you here, I've been trialing out a bit of an icebreaker question for some of our special guests that come onto the show. I want to run this by you. And given that you have a bit of an IndyCar interest as well, it might be quite intriguing to see what you come out with. So I'm going to throw it at you and see what we get. If I was to offer you any Formula One car in history and you could drive it at any circuit in the world, and of course, you completely understand this car like the back of your hand, you don't have to worry about testing it to get used to it, any circuit in the world, any F1 car in history, what are you driving and where are you going to drive it? Ah, oh, that's a, um, you know, I'm, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm a real sucker for, for the early 2000s and th- there's various cars over that era that, that I really, really enjoy. And, you know, I, I sort of grew up, cut my teeth, not as a fan, but very much when I was starting to drive, watching the sort of Hacken and Schumacher era and Juan Pablo Montoya and the Williams. And then obviously we've just had Spa and there's a lot of tweets around them and Hill's victory in the Jordan. What a wonderful looking car that was. So in terms of the era, it, it would have to be that sort of early 2000s for me. I always get asked my favourite circuit. I don't think you could get an F1 car around it. It's actually Pope which is a street track down in the south of France. And I just think it's the most remarkable circuit. Not uh, not to mention it's really survived the, the sound of time in terms of they've not ever really made any meaningful changes. You've still got tarm, uh, pavement, tarmac pavement either side of the racetrack before the barriers. And you still see all of the French junior championships racing around their world touring cars. We used to have the FIA or the F3 weekend before it was the FIA Formula 3 Championship. So Poe, for me, is a wonderful track. But if we had to pick a Formula 1 track, I'm, I'm, you know, getting on and, I, you know, sounds stereotypical because we're going to talk about Monza, but but I absolutely love the Autodromo de Nazionale Monza and, and the the Tafosi, the, the, just the ghosts and the ghouls around the bank, everything that's special around a, a track like Monza and it's one of the the last sort of bastions if you like of tracks that hasn't really turned into a, a a giant tarmac car park apart from the final corner which has been renamed as we know but we'll just sort of skip past that and, and I'd say you know Monza's one of my favorite tracks as well 
Oh yeah, they can change the name as much as they like, Tom, but that will forever be known to me as Parabolica. You know, exactly. it, it, especially that era as well. You know, such a wonderful era of Formula One cars. And I know some of our younger fans obviously weren't quite old enough to enjoy it in the way that you and I would have done. But uh, there was something romantic about Monza, the V10, end of the V10 cars, of course, in the early 2000s, Hacken and Schumacher, what a great era and battle that was. So I definitely can resonate with that one. That's one that definitely gets a huge approval from me. And of course, obviously, I'm not much of a, I'm not familiar with Poe circuit, but I'll definitely have to check that yeah. out because it does sound quite interesting. I mean, any sort of street circuit with character about it, if it's quite narrow, is obviously going to be a winner in my book and i'm sure it's an awesome yeah. f3 races for, you know lewis mm. hamilton would have raced there in, in f3 and there's some wonderful races through the archives it's down on the sort of french spanish border the pyrenees if you like wonderful place to visit great culture down there i'll definitely have to check that out sounds like a nice place for a city break perhaps or for a romantic getaway if i can convince the other half to uh, come with me but of course I'm, I'm sure you'll have plenty of fun with that recently obviously you know congratulations on your happy uh, well, on your wedding of course not too yes, long ago I'm married now it was delayed it was a long time coming because of covid but uh here comes the rain hopefully you can still hear me because it's it's just we've got skylights we've in got an and atmosphere the ceiling <laughs> so it's uh very wet outside but yeah we got married in may and then I had a really action-packed summer. What, what with the month of May for IndyCar is a big month, and then with Formula One and IndyCar and various other things, June and July was was a busy time. So we've not been able to go and have a honeymoon yet, but enjoying married life. Yeah, well, it sounds fantastic. You've definitely got a keeper by the sounds of that one. So obviously, uh, wishing you and Mrs. Maymore, uh, Gaymore, I should say. Sorry, apologies for that. Many happy returns on that one. But of course. We're here to talk about F1, and I think if we can take a bit of a sideways step, Tom, being our resident IndyCar expert on this show this evening, talking about the situation regarding the F1 driver market, and one name that has done the rounds quite a lot recently is Colton Herter. And one team in particular that seemed to be quite interested in bringing him in was McLaren. Of course, recently we heard the news that McLaren are in fact signing Oscar Piastri for 2023, and it's emerged suddenly that Alpha Tauri and in particular Red Bull, are interested in bringing Colton into the fold of the Red Bull Academy. And in, specifically, it was uh, Helmut Marko, uh, according to Chris Medlin's tweet, the F1 journalist Chris Medlin was saying that Helmut Marko had just told him that an agreement had already been reached with Colton Herter to join as long as he's granted a super licence by the FIA. They're expecting a decision by Monza, of course. Christian Horner doubled down on this and said that Colton is the only driver that they're looking at to potentially replace Pierre Gasly, who might be going to Alpine. And of course, those dominoes have to fall in the right place for that to happen. But the obvious stumbling block right now is the super license issue. And for the benefit of our listeners, Tom, when you sort of hear the possibility that someone as gifted and talented as Colson Herter may not be offered a chance to Formula One because the current regulations suggest he's not adequately qualified to drive. How does that make you feel from an indie perspective? I mean, that's got to be a bit of a kick in the teeth almost. You know what, just as a sports fan in general, I think it's it's not right. This is a, an individual who is good enough, is experienced enough and is falling victim to a structure that essentially might not be, and I won't say fit for purpose, because I think it is fit for purpose, but might not be 
quite right. And what I mean by that is there is work in progress and flexibility to be afforded. And if you look at sport in general, sports entertainment at the end of the day, and fans want to see the best drivers, the quickest drivers, and politics and binary rules and various different things, it, it's, it's just... You know, it's it's just not in the, the nature of, of sport. It, it's and it's not a fairy tale having Colton in Formula One. He's earned it. I remember working with him or being in and around the garage when he was doing Formula Four with Lando Norris at Carlin back in the day. He was taking race victories away from Lando Norris and has gone on and progressed through his learning curve and raced in Europe and been on a very, very steep learning curve in America. I think he's got sort of over 60 IndyCar races to his name. He's, you know, raced in Indy Lights. He's, his CV's glowing. To say that he's not at the level and or able to qualify for a super license, well, that says more about the system or the ladder, if you like, than it does about Colton Herter, because in my opinion, he's every bit good enough. And I hope that flexibility and common sense does prevail here. I'm not saying that we should scrap the system. I'm not saying that the system's not fit for purpose, but we need to have a really good look at it because some if it's preventing someone like Colton Herter from being on the grid next year, then we need to change it. Yeah, I think I agree with that one because I heard a lot of people saying, look, they need to just scrap the system and start again because it's almost ridiculous now, you know, I mean, we're talking for a long time. There's always been that, um, not necessarily a gulf between F1 and IndyCar, but F1 has always been uh, pictured as the pinnacle of motorsport. And I still believe that it is. And I'm sure a lot of the guys in IndyCar probably still see it that way too. But there are quite limited opportunities for drivers from IndyCar to move straight into Formula One, no matter how adequately qualified they are. I mean, look at Alex Palau, for example, you know, the hurdles he's currently having to go through with the, uh, you know, the controversy owing to the uh, tug of war going on between Ganassi Racing and McLaren for his services in the future. And you look at someone like Alex and you'd think, well, he's the IndyCar champion. Yes, he can jump straight into Formula One if he wanted to, because he has the adequate number of super license points. But when you look at the super license pointing system, IndyCar is rated right now um, with, as, with a lower threshold than Formula 2. Now, that's not me saying that the guys in Formula 2 aren't as good as some, as the IndyCar drivers are, but then you look at some of the names in IndyCar. You looked at, as, as already mentioned, Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, Alex Palau, Pato Ward, Colton Herta, Roman Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson, two drivers that have recently moved into IndyCar. Marcus Ericsson, of course, winning the Indy 500, no less, this, this year. So... You look at all of those names and you think you couldn't come up with a justifiable reason to deny why those guys aren't good enough for Formula One. They're some of the best drivers on the planet, let alone in IndyCar racing. And for me, Tom, I feel like the system does need to be altered in a way to sort of acknowledge that IndyCar should at very least be on par with Formula Two in terms of their grading system. I mean, the top three drivers in F2 all score 40 points, which would be enough to secure a seat in F1, whereas IndyCar, only the IndyCar champion is able to do that right now. So for me, I feel like there's something that needs to be addressed in that regard. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And if you look at IndyCar as well, in comparison to Formula 2, yes, you could say they're similar in terms of almost being one-make championships, but I think there's more of a, a hierarchy in terms of 
what team you're in affecting your championship position. And also you've got the two manufacturers in IndyCar. Now, Chevrolet have had a really good year compared to the Hondas. Andretti as a team haven't quite got it together. They're a Honda back squad, of course. And if you look at Colton, he's ahead of his teammates, one of which has raced in Formula One, Alexander Rossi, and one of which has had a, a very, very long career in Formula One, Romain Grosjean. So if you look at, you know, that's why I'm not a big fan. I used the term binary earlier, the sort of binary ruling. I, I think you need to have a, a sort of rookie orientation, if you like, and, and actually get Colton over if that's one of the solutions and put his case to the FIA as to why he needs the rookie orientation, put him out in a rookie orientation and of which he'll pass with flying colours and, and, and away he goes. Well, this is it. And of course, Colton does have enough points at this time to qualify for that uh, rookie opportunity. As we've mentioned in the past, um, obviously this season, Formula One teams are mandated to run two FP1 sessions with a rookie driver with at least, I think it's 25 super license points. At this point in time, Colton does qualify for that. We've seen in the past Pato Award, I think he had a run out in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Colton had a drive in the McLaren in a 2021 car. I know it's something that McLaren have been trying to get Alex Palau to do with a view to it being an FP1 seat. Whilst it seems right now that the um, Indy to F1 transition is being handled single-handedly by Zach Brown at this point, almost approaching half of the Indy car grid or roster, if you like, to try and bring them over to give them that opportunity. Do you feel, how realistic do you think it will be that we might see one of those drivers from IndyCar in Formula One? Because I'm a little bit worried right now, Tom, that the only obvious opportunity to them seems to be just an FP1 seat that they're all fighting for rather than a seat on the 2023 grid, for example. Yeah, well, Zach has hoovered up some very impressive young drivers. You mentioned two of them, obviously, Alex Pillow and um, Colton Herter. We think Colton Herter will be released to Red Bull and, and Zach won't stand in the way. Neither will Andretti. We know that if he was to get a super licence. Alex Pillow, obviously now his two sides in terms of this is nothing to do with McLaren. It's Alex Pillow and his management are in mediation with Chip Ganassi and the lawyers on that side to free him up from his contract. So this is not Chip Ganassi versus McLaren. This is Chip Ganassi of, or believe they've got an option on Pelot. The teams now are in mediation and it'll be interesting to see what happens because first and foremost, Alex is, is the nicest guy. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not say, saying that as a cliche or, you know, Alex is just a good guy. And everybody that has met Alex has good things to say about him the way he carries himself the way he goes about things he just does it with grace and if you watch or follow his progress since the contract debacle with Chip Ganassi and McLaren has sort of unfolded over the last few months he's carried himself with real grace and he's been professional he's been courteous to both sides and he genuinely cares and you can see it's really hurting him. So I hope that the mediation goes well and we get an answer over the next few weeks. And, you know, Alex is free to, he's made no secret that he does want to sort of return back to Spain and he is Spanish and he sees himself living in Spain at some stage. Having a Formula One opportunity would bring him back to Europe. He's not adverse to competing again in IndyCar 
but I think he would commute. And there are drivers that have done that from Europe. You know, Max Chilton did that. So I think he would be keen to commute and get back to Europe. And, you know, McLaren and, and Zach Brown have seen his talent and, and offered him that opportunity. And, you know, he's another young driver who will be, if he's in a Grand Prix car, sensational. You've got Colton Herta, you've got Pelot, you've got Lungard, who's earning his stripes now. You've got a whole host of young drivers. You know, even the likes of Scott McLaughlin, what he's done coming from a car that has a roof over it to a single seater at the top level with world-class teammates, Will Power and Joseph Newgarden, and to win three races this year, have three pole positions, you know, that's really impressive. So there's some fantastically talented young drivers. Callum Eilot's another one making waves in his his rookie year. So uh, at the moment, it's Colton and Alex Pelot that have been hoovered up by Zach. And I think we may well see one of them in Formula One, but not in the McLaren in the short term. And, uh, you know, I hope all the best for, for Alex Pelot because he really deserves that. He deserves a shot at doing it his way. And I hope it works out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of drivers there that I think are quite interesting to this debate. Callum Eilert and Christian Lungard, two drivers that were narrowly missing out on winning the F2 championship in, you know, their own respective seasons. And of course, I wouldn't consider the switches that they made to IndyCar as being a sideways step or a step down. I consider that to be a step up, obviously, considering the calibre of drivers they're competing against, the level of machinery that they're driving with. I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves, IndyCar um, to F1, obviously, there are going to be comparisons there, but it's still, in my mind, a step up, not to you know discredit F2, it's important. But I do feel there has to be a balance struck here, or at least a door has to be open to provide opportunity for IndyCar drivers to feel that they can come into Formula 1, that this opportunity that's presented to the likes of Colson Herter, maybe Alex Palau and Pat Ward and a few others, of course, may not feel in the future that this is their one and only opportunity to come into Formula 1. And I think Stefano Domenicali recently, you know, he wasn't really against the idea of changing the super licence, but he wanted to respect the regulations with the super license at this point, which for me seemed to close the door a little bit into IndyCar. In your mind, Tom, do you feel that from an F1, from a business perspective, it's going to be a lot more attractive to them to sort of open this door because they've done such a great job in the American market in recent years, Drive to Survive playing its part. But I feel like they've not been able to capitalise yet on the surge in the market from the American perspective if they start opening the door for more drivers from the Indy series to think there is a route into Formula One without having to go through the F3, F2 ladder. Yeah, I think you're right. And obviously that route is still there if you're successful enough. But we know in terms of looking at Formula One, in championships like Formula One or IndyCar, where there are different manufacturers, different teams, hierarchies, it's hard to win races in the right cup. So, for example, you could say in Formula One that, I don't know, Drivers like Esteban Ocon or Pierre Gasly, if they, you know, if Pierre had not gone to Red Bull or whatever it is, are no good because if you look at their results, they haven't won races, and you know that where are they in the championship, and they don't get enough points, and it's just not a fair comparison. And IndyCar is very much like that. Look at Callum Eilock now; he's in a one-car team, and he's slaying giants. That's his term. <laughs> Let's go and slay some giants because. A one-car outfit that's new to IndyCar, taking on the might of Team Penske, Chip Ganassi, Andretti, Arrow McLaren. It, it's just unheard of. It's, it's a fairy tale. But to, to say that Callum is no good because he hasn't 
finished in, I don't know, the top two or three positions. I know he's got points from F2, so it's a bit of a hypothetical conversation. But let's say Callum had come through Indy Lights or Formula 3 and gone to IndyCar or whatever it is, like Colton has. It, it, it just it's beggar's belief. So it, it's definitely something that, that needs a discussion around and or some flexibility. I know why the FIA have done it. It's the safeguard and create that ladder that formality, that sort of funnel into Formula One, for instance. So you do push through F3, you do push for, through Formula Two, but we, we should never say never. Just because a footballer, if you like, goes and plays in La Liga or Serie A or the Bundesliga, doesn't mean he can't come back to the Premier Premier League. It, 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 it just it does it, it doesn't work out for me. So it's important that that's not a closed shop and that drivers who haven't come up through that um you know that ladder still have an opportunity. Let's say hypothetically you're a young American driver, you've got that drive from Netflix, that interest, you go karting, you run through the road to indie ladder, you you push up through indie lights into IndyCar and you want to go at Formula One, well, you're not going to have the points. And not everyone can afford to come to Europe from other countries and spend millions and millions and millions on the FIA pathway. So, you know, I think from a, you know, from an integrity perspective, and it, it's important that, that we recognise that there is a bit of discussion to have here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, IndyCar racing has obviously become exponentially more popular in recent years and it's allowed the top drivers there to have not just great careers, but obviously earn a decent living as well. So the incentive to drive in Formula One is now purely just for the sake of driving amongst what is considered to be the best drivers in the world. But in isolation, you'd probably argue that that's not always the case as much as it used to be. I will leave this topic with one clever statistic that I looked up with the other day and it wasn't provided by me guys I, I nabbed this off of social media so take it for what it's worth but if IndyCar over the last few years reflected the same number of super license points as it does in F2 Colton Hurser would have 68 points so we wouldn't even be having this discussion right now and uh, it, it's just crazy to think that right now one some of the best drivers in the world that are in IndyCar ha only a handful of them have got anywhere near close to enough points it's mad to drive in Formula 1 but I'm going to leave that one there, if I may, Tom, because we do need to move on to Formula One because I've only got you for so long. Yeah. Um, the Italian Grand Prix this weekend, obviously one of the biggest weekends in the F1 calendar. We're going there with Max Verstappen in incredible form right now. I think, was it four or five wins in a row right now? I think the Austrian Grand Prix was the last time we didn't have a Max win, which was Charles Leclerc for Ferrari, of course, correctly pointed out by one of my followers because I got that wrong in the uh, review last weekend for the Dutch Grand Prix. Going into this weekend, Red Bull obviously have an incredible straight line speed advantage over the rest of the field. They seem to have gone up another gear compared to their competitors right now. Can you see anyone else other than Max Verstappen realistically winning the Italian Grand Prix this weekend? Well, you'd be brave to get bet against him. Four on the bounce. And, you know, if you look at his nearest challenge, Charles Leclerc, second in points. You know, he's had, what, two podiums since Miami? Um, Sergio Perez, you know, he hasn't had a win since Monaco. Obviously, the, the Mercedes, George Russell in fourth, he hasn't had a win this year, neither's Carlos Sainz. So you'd have to say that the, the threat for Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Perez, or Carlos Sainz, two Mercedes, you know, the Mercedes were quick last time out in, in race practice. 
in, in race trim. And they were actually quite quick in a straight line in uh, in Zandvoort, the two Mercedes. It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen and certainly that the sort of ballpark setup with the bouncing and the porpoising and various different things and how that slows the car down. But, you know, there's one thing that's been clear all year and that Red Bull have such a clear pace advantage in a straight line that it didn't really matter where Charles Leclerc qualified. I think he had like seven pole positions at the beginning that the Red Bull was so quick in those DRS zones that it could just cruise past Charles. And now actually they've got the pace advantage, Red Bull. You know, they're qualifying at the front and finishing at the front. So yes, I can't see anyone really getting close to Max, but it, it, it's such a topsy-turvy year in terms of the, the finite windows around setup and and, and, and the tire tent window and, and, and various other things. You know, you can go to Spa and then Zandvoort and the, the form guy, take Red Bull out of it, is so, so difficult to predict in that, that midfield. You know, teams just disappear. Look at Alpine, for example. I mean, it's they just they were, they were nowhere and then you know you look at Mercedes who really from Paul Ricard have been promising that they're they're getting closer to a race win you know they they were very close in Zandvoort but you 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 just you know you're just a little bit unsure as to how it's going to play out and yes the number crunchers know exactly but it's still difficult to predict this year take Verstappen's dominance out of it. It's really strange because I, I remember not long ago we were talking about Sir Lewis Hamilton in, in the same breath. And of course, you know, everything that he's achieved in this sport goes without saying of how dominant he has been over the last decade or so. I mean, we compare eras and we look at what Max Verstappen is doing right now. Of course, we're only seeing the beginning of what many people are calling the start of the Verstappen era. But Given what we're seeing right now, we have a team that has, as you mentioned already, the fastest car in qualifying now. It's something that Ferrari monopolised for most of 2022. That's now shifted away from them. They're one real asset that they had. The car is incredible in race trim. The tyre wear is perfect. It seems to be so adjustable for setup that you could put it in any scenario and it comes out on top with Max Verstappen in that car. It's it's just such a formidable pairing right now. I mean, how impressed have you been by this, this pairing, considering how mentally difficult it must have been for Red Bull to win last season's World Championship, all the caveats and controversies aside. Yeah, I think, you know, what's been clear ever since Max came into Formula One is his mental strength, his ability to have total belief in what it is he's doing and how he's going to do it. Now, that sounds really easy to say, but to actually go and do that when you haven't proved yourself at the top level, you're at the top level, you're dealing with some very experienced people around you, some big characters in that team. And he just has that ability to shut off and do it his way. So he's he's very, very good when it comes to the, the mental aspects. I always say the human underpins the performer. And what that allows Max to do is be the best that he can be almost all the time. He's just relentlessly hungry and quick over a lap. He does it all the time. He had a little bit of a blip when he was 
sort of working through some personal development in terms of his emotions, didn't want to lose that emotional edge, that hunger, that drive, that passion, but he didn't want to make silly mistakes. So it was not a quick, it, it wasn't a quick process working through that. You know, loads of people over the, the few years that it played out were saying, Max has got to change, Max has got to do this, Max has got to, you know, he didn't listen to anybody, he trusted his own process, he trusted the team around him and he did it his way and he's found a really good coping mechanism just to brim that. It's like a whistling kettle, isn't it? Just to brim that uh, emotion when he needs to. And, the, you know, we saw it at the beginning of the year. They had a really difficult start to the year and he didn't blow out. He had total faith in the team around him. He knew that his time would come when he was racing Charles Leclerc and Ferrari had just that unbelievable place on the Saturday and, constantly got down into turn one ahead of Max Verstappen. And, you know, Max just trusted his game there. And, and you know, there was very little in the way of any uh, hiccups. And again, Austria, for example, when it just fell away from Max on that second stint, that's the only real blip that we've seen from Red Bull as a team not get their head around the car and what they needed to be doing in terms of where the setup was to, to manage the threat from Ferrari. But, you know, Max didn't didn't panic there and, and finished second. So he, he's very much the complete article this year. And you can see winning the championship last year has given him that extra bit of confidence that's pretty ominous to everyone else. And there's there's no one else that's matched his consistency because if you look at Charles, for example, Sergio, Carlos... I'm going to use a world superbike analogy. When Top Rat Razgatioglu or, um, oh, crikey, the names, on the Ducati, when they were winning all the races and Jonathan Ray was just finishing second every single time. And Bautista, when Bautista was winning all the races, I think he won something phenomenal, like 11 races. And Jonathan Ray was just finishing second. And Jonathan Ray actually won that championship in the end because the pressure got to Bautista. And although he had all those wins, he capitulated. Well, no one's really had the consistency that Max has had. So if you're not winning, you need to still be finishing second every weekend or third every weekend. And, you know, Charles and Ferrari have not been able to do that. Neither's Carlos Sainz or Sergio Perez. So his consistency has been, as well as his speed, phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely agree with all that, Tom. And it's a, it's a really good point that you made, that obviously when Max won the 2021 World Championship, as I said, albeit the caveats aside for the obvious controversies that uh, were as a result of that. But what really impressed me with Max, as you've already mentioned, is the way that he was able to hone that aggression. You know, this is a guy that when you tune into the team radio at certain points in the race, when even when things are going well, there might be moments where Max is angry or in the Spanish Grand Prix, he's literally punching the DRS button because it wasn't working. As hilarious as that was for us listening in, Max is still able to put the performance together and end up winning that Grand Prix despite that. You know, he didn't panic. He didn't make silly mistakes. All right, he got a bit of fortune because of Charles' retirement in that race when that was his race to lose. But Max is still able to deliver those results and that consistency. And that is something that you very, very rarely see, even amongst the all-time greats that it's frightening how consistently good he has become right now. And I think it just tells a tribute to that is how many of us were betting on Max Verstappen to win the Belgian Grand Prix when he started in 14th on the grid? Quite a lot of us. 
You wouldn't be doing that. You, I mean, I can't remember the amount of times that I'd ever thought or looked at Michael Schumacher, for example, or even Sir Lewis Hamilton at the German Grand Prix in 2018, sitting there thinking, yeah, Lewis is going to win today before a wheel was even turned. But with Max in that race, it was just absolutely incredible. And I think it's a testament to how brilliant he ha- how brilliant the driver he's become. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it, it was difficult to look past anyone but Max. Such was their sort of middle sector pace. And we know then in sector one and three, they've got the the outright speed advantage, especially in the DRS zones, to, to really get it done. I mean, but he was really close to the front after about sort of eight laps, wasn't he? So, mm. yeah. It, 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 I, well, you run out of superlatives with him. He is very, very good. And so Charles. You know, at the end of the day, Charles brilliant. Sergio Perez has really risen to the top he's grown into his position there at, at Red Bull under a huge amount of pressure and you know look at the job that George Russell's done Carlos Sainz has done a really good job over the last sort of handful of races that you know then you've got Lewis Hamilton so Lewis Hamilton of course in sixth Lando Norris in seventh you're really talking about some of the, the the best drivers across a generation and you know if you compare to other generations so it's some really really talented young drivers that the, the sort of future's bright and max is i know he's got a, a very quick car underneath him but max is not making them look silly but as i said who's consistently finishing second well no one so so at the moment Max is just doing a better job on all fronts. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, quick note on Sergio Perez, of course. His form, whilst Max's has been exemplary, his form has kind of wavered a little bit over the last few races. I think it was probably the, the British Grand Prix the last time he'd actually, despite the terrible start that he had, he obviously was able to recover that. His form hasn't exactly been perhaps what Red Bull were hoping for. Do you think at the moment, obviously Red Bull with their development, how good they are at developing a car over a season, that perhaps the car that Checo was thriving with at the start of the season is now becoming increasingly difficult for him to get the most out of, which is explaining as to why out of the six cars, he's more often fifth or sixth out of those top six at the moment. Yeah, I think it's no secret Max really likes a car on the nose and very few racing drivers like that and the way the car sort of developed around max as the season's gone on because obviously there's been a huge amount of r&d around these regs and the new regs and 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 the way the cars are set up and the the sort of thought process around how you get the best performance in all areas it's sort of catered around Max, hasn't it? it? It naturally will do. Sergio Perez has done a good job. He's under a huge amount of pressure. He's got a, a very strong head on his shoulders. And we've seen over the years how difficult it can be alongside Max, especially for the younger drivers. And, you know, I, I, I think Sergio's doing a good job, personally. It's not the, the same job that Max is doing. But, you know, it's not a million miles away from second in the championship. If I look at the points, yeah, he's tied, isn't he? So, you know, if he finishes second in the championship, then he's done his job. Yeah, exactly that. And I think, you know, that's something that... I had self-admittedly, I was a little bit surprised to see him. I mean, he's done pretty well in the early parts of the season, but despite the issues with form, 
he is still, at the moment, in that P2 position alongside Leclerc. And there's no reason why he can't finish there at the end of the season. The car's certainly good enough. He's certainly good enough. So, uh, for his sake, hopefully uh, the better days will be ahead towards this um, ladder part of the season. We should move on to Ferrari. And on a bit of a sombre note, if you were a Ferrari fan looking back as far as Melbourne earlier this season, seeing Charles Leclerc 40-odd points ahead of Max Verstappen, winning the first, two out of the first three races and, of course, just runner-up in Jeddah, you'd have been looking forward to coming to Monza, hoping that Ferrari were going to have a brilliant performance, perhaps win, maybe get a 1-2 if we're not being too selfish. Fast forward all the way up to Monza now. Charles Leclerc over 100 points behind Max Verstappen. Seemingly absolutely no way he could possibly win this world championship unless something really crazy happens with Max Verstappen. Of course, I don't want to speculate as to what that could be because, you know... The, can go down a very dark place um, in that regard when it comes to motorsport. But that aside, Ferrari's objectives have obviously shifted now to try and preserving P2. And given the myriad errors and, you know, from drivers, strategic errors, um, as, as much as what we saw at the Dutch Grand Prix last weekend where they didn't even have four cars available to put on Carlos Sainz's car because they were reacting to a quick pit stop. You just feel right now, if there's one team that needs to put together a big result in front of their home fans, it's Ferrari. And if you wanted to flip it, Tom, if Ferrari have an equally disappointing weekend as they have done at other Grand Prix this season with these errors coming back to the surface, there's going to be absolutely nowhere for them to hide with egg on their face in front of their home fans. Yeah, the might of the Tafosi is a bit like the French rugby team in Paris. If they're not doing very well, the, the, the crowd turn on them. But yeah, I think for... For the Scuderia, for Ferrari, it's been a, a year of, of, you know, just not hitting their marks. They, they've had the most wonderful car and the most wonderful opportunity and, and, and the most wonderful platform. And the, so often sports about the fine margins and it's about people always say brilliant basics, just doing the basics well. And if you do the basics well, then it gives you a platform to convert when it just matters, those small moments, those fine margins. And what has really been the case with Ferrari is that they're sort of, their basics, their their sort of platform has crumbled away. So they they find themselves in good positions, but 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 their foundations are are crumbling away all too often, and that, and that's because of these sort of mistakes and a lot of it's pressure pressure that they bring on themselves. Obviously, this is a world championship. Charles fighting Max. There's a lot of media attention when you bring pressure on yourselves. The media pick up on that. That then adds to the equation, and it's it's just been a, a, a very difficult time. And if you don't do those basics well, you add fuel to the fire, and people will be questioning what you're doing, why you're doing it, and it becomes very difficult to keep coming out and saying the same things without actually remedying what what we're seeing. So, yeah, I really feel for, for Charles and, and, and Carlos and, and Matai and everyone at Ferrari because it's not through a, a, a what, you know, lack of trying or, or, or effort. It's, it's, it's just not worked out for them. And, you know, they'll really need to look hard at themselves in this week and make sure they convert and just get those basics right. It essentially will come down to pace because what Matai Binotto said at the end of the Dutch Grand Prix was that the most frustrating thing, they just weren't quick enough. 
And if you're just not quick enough now at this stage of the season against a rampant Max Verstappen and Red Bull, you're just going to be a sitting duck. And, you know, Mercedes are coming up now and taking points off them as well. That's not what they need. And if they have a bad weekend, Max could win this. You know, they've only got two or three weekends left to, to really stay in this title hunt. That's that's how serious it is for them. And that would be assuming that they were amongst the most optimistic of Tifosi supporters in thinking that there is still a slim chance for them. Of course, it's never over till it's over. So uh, we should at least credit them with that much. But interesting you mentioned about Matty Bonotto. I'm quite intrigued to get your thoughts on what went down last weekend with uh, Sky F1 uh, bringing Nico Rosberg into the fold, the 2016 world champion. And he had quite a stern assessment of what is going on at Ferrari, claiming as much as saying that uh, he's seen F2 and F3 pit crews do a better job than what is going on at Ferrari in, t- in terms of not just the pit crews, but the strategy as well. Matteo Bonotto obviously going on the offensive to respond to that, saying that Rosberg shouldn't really be talking about things he doesn't have a clue about, although we're talking about a guy that won a Formula One driver that's a world champion. So I'm not quite sure what Matteo was referring to um, when he came back at Rosberg. But for me, Tom, I just feel that whilst... Mattia should be applauded, not just for you know bringing Ferrari into a position where they are fighting for a world championship in theory and fighting for race wins again compared to where they were a few seasons ago, but also the fact that he has been bold enough to come out and talk about there being issues, but he's not exactly elaborated onto what those issues have been and to what they're going to actually do to resolve them. Is that cause for concern for you? Because it feels like a team like Ferrari, they need results and if they don't get them, Regardless of what Mattia wants to do in terms of stability, we're talking about Ferrari here. If they feel a change is needed, they will make one, more so than anybody else. Yes, I was talking about this earlier on. I think they've had something like 40-odd prime ministers since the Second World War as well. <laughs> it's sort of, it's that Italian blood. But the, I think, you know, with, with Matad, he's been defensive too often. Now, I personally don't, believe he has to air his dirty washing in public. He doesn't need to tell us what's wrong, but it's a slippery road when you start reacting to the pundits. The pundits are paid to give their opinion and they're going to give it. And if you start engaging with them and starting to to sort of be defensive towards what they're saying, then it's a distraction that plays on your mind. I touched on it a second ago. That's the pressure. That's the media coming in and commenting on what they see as the problem. Matthias' role is, is not really to react to that. It's to, to wear the flak and go home and, and make sure it doesn't happen again. The, the problem is, 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 is we're seeing fundamental issues around strategy and incidents in the pit lane happen over and over again and, and and it can't it can't continue to happen they even if they had the best car on the grid they, they cannot continue to make those mistakes so i think that the most powerful thing here is to to sort of come out get a good result against uh red bull and max in italy win the the applause of the Tafosi and, and start to build some momentum. They, they just have not been able to build any momentum. And, and that's where you only build momentum when you do the, the basics well, when you build that platform, that foundation that I was talking about. And if you can start to do those things well, then you you, you get the momentum. And uh, 
I think that's what Matai will be hoping and praying for. And, and listen, I hope for, for everyone's sake there that no one wants to see people under pressure. No one wants to see people fearing for their job. No one wants to see people sacked. But, you know, I hope that that there are changes and evolutions underway at Ferrari and, you know, they can come out and, and show their true potential week in and week out. Yeah, and I certainly hope that that is the case. Um, obviously, my biases aside, but how, how do you see Ferrari getting on this weekend? Obviously, with all that pressure they've got to deal with, it's something that's not new to them. They're obviously used to dealing with pressure, but this is a car right now where not only are they have they fallen behind Red Bull in the pecking order in terms of how fast their car is, but race pace, you could argue that Mercedes have leapfrogged them a little bit. Uh, not by much, but with the tyre degradation of that Ferrari, it might start the race faster than Mercedes, but it certainly doesn't finish it faster than the Mercedes. So, uh, and on a circuit, no less, that rewards straight line speed, which is something that Ferrari this season haven't always been at the top of the charts for. Yeah, I think for Mercedes, you know, they've been threatening since their upgrade package at Silverstone and, and they've been very confident and it just hasn't worked out for them for, for whatever reason. They they really did think that Paul Ricard was going to be a breakthrough after the Red Bull ring because that, that wasn't really a track that suited them and they couldn't build on the momentum from Silverstone. And then it didn't work out in Hungary really did it not quite but still knocking on the door still you know really close to to, to that first win if you look at where they finished both cars on the podium and then Spa was was a strange weekend that's what I said earlier on where you just can't predict where the midfield's going to be and it was a tough weekend for them at Spa and then obviously came to, to Zandvoort and surprised everyone. Everybody was really, really shocked at their ability to, to do the one-stopper and have the pace that, that they they have. So it, it's going to be very difficult to, to predict where, where they end up. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that they should be in, in and amongst it. Certainly this type of circuit, is is quite a good track for them when when they put the downforce on it it tends to tends to cause them a few problems in terms of the bouncing and and everything else take it off and that car's quite good yeah no i absolutely agree with that i think it's, uh, it's definitely one to look out for but quick word on mercedes and whilst the result that they got in zandvoort p2 and p4 would normally be considered a good one given how mercedes season started Obviously, there was a lot of disappointment from the Sir Lewis Hamilton camp where he felt his race was kind of ruined by the strategy. Although I think upon reflection, he was kind of damned if he didn't, damned if he didn't, owing to those safety cars. It was either going to be try and hold the lead or try and recover P2. And in the end, he ended up doing neither of those things. How, how do you think Mercedes will get on this weekend? And of course, with George Russell putting in another impressive showing and also, you know, a great piece of innovation on strategy as well, depending on how you sort of saw that one. Yeah, I think they need to start near the front. One of their biggest issues is they they don't start near enough to, to the front of the field and they have a good car on the Sunday and especially when they haven't got the downforce, they tend to do quite well. Obviously, last weekend was high downforce, but they fooled everyone with their ability to, to get that one stopper working and, and, and earn their way or push their way to the front. That because of that 
I, I, you know, I think this weekend they'll be really boyish. That they'll be um, bullish. Sorry, I think they, you know, stand a really good chance. I just can't see a season where Mercedes don't win a race. They've been so so close, and last weekend was arguably their best chance. Fifteen laps to go, I think it was for Lewis Hamilton, and you know, it just didn't didn't quite didn't quite play out as. Lewis Hamilton would have hoped, or or Mercedes for that matter. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think earlier in the season, when we had plenty of races to go, I think a lot of us probably shared the opinion that surely Mercedes will at some point either have a car that can fight for race wins or they'll win a Grand Prix eventually. We just assumed that it would happen at some point. As it stands, we're almost two-thirds into the season now. And whilst Mercedes have gotten closer, arguably their best chance was at Zandvoort, although, you know, strategy just went against them on the day, the way the race planned out. We're still at this point now, it's just Ferrari and Red Bull that have won races. And the obvious obstacle for Mercedes, the one thing they just cannot seem to get over right now is Max Verstappen and Red Bull. Given how close we are towards the end of the season now, Tom, do you think that Mercedes' chances of winning a race this season are running out? And of course, let's not forget... Sir Lewis Hamilton has never gone a full F1 season without winning a Grand Prix. So that incredible record is also on the line. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two things playing out here. At the beginning of the year, there was that sort of opinion that Mercedes would not only just find the setup, but actually find some real big fixes. And that car would just suddenly burst back onto the scene and, and be a, a on par with, with, with the Ferrari and, and, and the Red Bull. I, I, that's not going to happen now. And what we tend to see is around the setup, they have a real chance and get themselves into strong positions to fight for a victory. Now, they might not have the outright pace. They might have to rely on circumstance. Things aligning for them. It hasn't aligned for them. You know, that, for example, what happened to, to Lewis at the end of the, the, the Dutch weekend, you know, that wasn't all the stars aligning. That was... Uh, advantage Red Bull and and a, a bit of a if it's a game of snakes and ladders that was a bit of a snake for for Lewis and and Mercedes there so they need a bit of luck and they need to be in the right place at the right time and I think they've got a car good enough now with their understanding that if they do qualify near the front and they do find themselves in the right place at the right time I think they can capitalize on that and they can definitely win a race before the year's out. Yeah, it's tantalisingly close for me. It almost feels that they're probably thinking, oh man, I wish Max would have reliability troubles. He seems to be the one obstacle right now because as you said, consistency is key and that's something Max has shown. And when Mercedes are in that position where they could win, it's usually Max that's the one that's ahead of him towards the end. And unless something crazy happens, he's the one that gets the result. Um, Quick one on George Russell because obviously there was a lot to talk about from Sir Lewis Hamilton's perspective following that Grand Prix. How did you see that moment of innovation from George when he changed his strategy, which obviously went against what the team would have wanted him to do. They'd have wanted him to follow suit, but it allowed him to use the safety cars to change his strategy, which ultimately took him ahead of his teammate, who was kind of left in a catch-22. Yeah, I think it was slightly easier for George once Lewis went off strategy in terms of elected not to to, to, to pit. Um, you know, George then made the decision to to hit the box and to do something different, to roll the dice that, you know, George wants to win the race and he, he wasn't thinking at that stage, I'm going to play rear gunner to Lewis Hamilton and try and help Lewis get Mercedes first win of the year. So 
you know, given where they are in the championship, fourth and sixth now after that weekend, that I think it might have been a different conversation and or a different scenario had it been what we've seen over the years gone by. But those two Mercedes are just racing each other and they're trying to to get a race win. And yes, we heard Toto Wolf on reflection say at, at the end that, you know, they could have left George out there, but I think they went for a split strategy. George made that call. They allowed him to do it. And he was trying to win that race. Lewis was trying to win the race and elected to do what he was doing. The team didn't really get involved. I think everybody was a little bit perplexed afterwards because we're used to, not team orders in Formula One, but we're used to that sort of coming into fruition, the team sort of putting their foot down. And, you know, that was a Mercedes win that maybe went begging there because of the split strategy. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, we'll never know, but it would have been fun to sort of see perhaps Max Verstappen chase the two Mercedes down in a normal scenario and see what would have happened. It would have been quite an interesting finale. Um, We'll move on briefly to Alpine and McLaren. Now, this is a quite exciting battle that I think has gone under the radar with all due respect to everything else that's been going on around them. But we've had Fernando Alonso obviously moving to Aston Martin next season. That's certainly not dented his form by any stretch or his motivation to do well for Alpine. A point scorer in the last 10 races in a row, which is, you know, great stuff from him. Ocon, a regular point scorer as well. Up against Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo, one of those two, obviously Norris spearheading the attack for McLaren, whilst, whilst Ricciardo has been very down in the dumps of late, understandably owing to his future really being undecided right now and in the manner in which he's obviously been removed from the McLaren team for next season. It feels right now that despite the back and forth between the two teams, Alpine very much in the ascendancy right now. So in terms of McLaren, Tom, do you think that McLaren can overturn this deficit to Alpine towards the end of the season? And if so, is it reliant on Daniel Ricciardo upping his form, no less at a venue that he won last season? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you, you're you at a disadvantage if you're fighting a team that has two cars capable of points, Ocon and Alonso, very evenly matched. And we haven't seen that parity between Lando and Daniel Ricciardo. So McLaren will be hoping and praying that Daniel finds some confidence. It's, it, you know, it's, it, it's really hard for him. He started off the year with, I think, more pace than he had last year. That gap was closer, but for whatever reason, it, 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 it just hasn't worked out. And he just can't seem to, to find the pace that, that Lando has in the car. And now his head's down. He's not the type of guy to, to walk around or to to not give his best. So he'll be giving 100%, but, but he's still absolutely lost as to what it is he needs to do next. I mean, there's only so many things you can do. He would have thrown the kitchen sink at it by now, but where's the pace? If, he, if it was that simple, he would have found it by now. And it's not just a case of driving a bit quicker or whatever it is. He, he would have systematically been trying to break down absolutely everything to, to, to find where where he can improve. But, it, you know, Lando's such a talented driver. He's up there with Max, with Charles Leclerc, with George. So it's no mean feat. But it's advantage Alpine, given the parity that they have, the quality of driver that they have in their car. And McLaren really will need to pull something out of the bag. 
But if they do pull something out of the bag in terms of their car, bet your bottom dollar that Lando will be there to capitalise. And if they really do have a good balance, then Lando's going to go big on that and you don't bet against him having another podium. And then that does change things. Such a big points haul. So, you know, Fernando's had so many opportunities this year, hasn't he? He's been so close to the front. Alpine have such a good car at certain circuits. And I think I tweeted the other day after Spa, if he, if he didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. But... He, it just he hasn't quite managed to convert. I think it was Canada, Spa, you know, all of these good qualifying positions, and it just does go away from them in in the race. And yet he's still up there in the championship. It's just a testament to how great Fernando is, even at the uh, even well into his forties now. So he's just like a fine wine, Fernando Alonso. Just never seems to get any worse at all with age. It's always a good thing if you are yeah. a wine enthusiast, of course. Yeah. Um, we should talk a little bit about Ricardo just uh, before we summarise the uh, teams in the latter part of the midfield, Tom. Ricardo obviously looking for a seat for next season. We're not quite sure what the feelers are in terms of which teams are actually looking at Daniel Ricardo. I mean, if you were a team boss at, say, Williams, for example, who are looking at a seat for next year, Haas perhaps as well, uh, Alpha Tauri perhaps less likely, but just to put them in the mix as well, any of those teams do you think would be looking at Ricardo and thinking it's an opportunity to bring him in? Or do you feel perhaps the value for how much it would cost to bring him in for what you're going to get in return might not necessarily be as appealing as some of the other drivers that are looking for seats? Well, affordability is one thing. There is a question mark over him now because two different sets of regulations in terms of, okay, it's still a McLaren that he's been in, but last year to this year, slight difference in terms of the regulations around how you drive the car still hasn't delivered against Lando. So whichever way you look at it, there is a slight question mark over Daniel Ricciardo now. So affordability, question mark, and, you know, do... do do the teams want to take that risk? What, you know, you've got to weigh that up. Um, Formula One's not with the way the simulators are and, and, and various other things. You know, you do see young drivers coming up on the Pirelli tar through F2 or whatever it is and getting up to speed fairly quickly. Are those teams better off running a, a younger driver for a fraction of the price? And maybe getting more performance because that young driver actually might continue to improve. Where's Daniel going to find his pace? If he couldn't find it in the McLaren, are we going to be paying someone a lot of money to to, to actually not do the job that, that we were hoping to do? I think, you know, for Daniel, then does he want to go to Haas and Williams? No disrespect. But, you know, what what, what does he want to achieve out of Formula One now? What are his goals? He needs to control alt delete. He needs to sort of park the emotion and, and, and anxiety around suddenly finding himself out of Formula One and, and, and question what it is he wants in, in this his twilight years of his career and uh, and and who's best placed to deliver that. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. I can see him taking a sabbatical personally, but but uh We'll wait and see because the only people that know what's going to happen are Daniel Ricciardo and the people around him. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I was going to push you actually for a yes or no answer if you expect to see him on the grid next season. But I think with a sabbatical, I think you've kind of given me that one. And I think that's probably the best word for it. I, I'm just hoping it's more of a Fernando Alonso sabbatical rather than a Mika Hakkinen sabbatical, one of which he hasn't still yet returned to Formula One from. So, you know, fingers crossed we might see Mika on the grid 
in one year soon. I'm sure he's still got it in him to uh, put a few worldies in there. Fernando can do it. Mika can definitely do it. Um, the second half of the midfield now. I'm going to summarise these because I'm sure, you know, we're a bit pressed for time here. But we've got Alfa Romeo, Haas, Alfa Tauri, Aston Martin and Williams, no less. All of these teams all fighting each other with a very small performance deficit covering all five of those teams fighting on the fringes of the points and on occasion managing to get in there. If I could ask for two drivers, Tom, out of those five teams that you are saying ones to watch out for this weekend at Monza, which two drivers are you looking at? Well, the problem with Aston Martin, they just don't seem to qualify very well. So they had this sort of upgrade that that they hoped would, you know, going into the European season, change things. And then that that didn't happen. Couldn't get their heads around it. Had difficult conditions. Had great pace in practice in wet weather and, and various other things. And then um, don't ever really seem to be able to, to, to sort of qualify up the grid. Alfa Romeo obviously was a really quick car to start off with, had all of the reliability problems. You know, we talked about Ferrari having those brilliant basics and that platform couldn't build on the platform. And and so therefore have, have struggled. And, and, you know, the Haas ha- has been there and thereabouts at, at times, but again, just find themselves not being able to, to to convert as the season's gone on. It's no surprise that, you know, given their resources and once the sort of big R&D push comes on, even with the budget cap, it, it, it's been very hard for them to, to, to sort of keep up the running in terms of the, the, the development race. And so, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, every, everybody's doing a reasonably good job in, in and around those cars. I think Alexander Albon in the Williams, for me, probably doing the, the best job that car can be a top 10 qualifier at times. And, you know, he's he, he's, a, he's a seriously talented young driver. And, you know, together with uh, Joe Guanyu at, at times, who's, who's actually been pretty impressive in his rookie season, I would say those are the two, but for for very different reasons. Very hard to shine actually in that midfield because don't get a lot of coverage, always battling lots of different challenges, hurdles and speed bumps. And, you know, it's a real dogfight down there. So it is hard to shine. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I think this season more than others, Tom, we've seen the broadcast not focus too much on that side of the grid, quite strange. I think even less so than we've seen in previous years. Maybe that's just my opinion, but uh, it just seems a bit less to me. But two good drivers, I think very solid choices. And I'll probably agree with those to a degree. I think Zhou Guan Yu, because of Bottas's issues in the last few races, it's been quite hard to notice that he's actually been, at the very least, on Bottas's level, if not a little bit quicker in the last few races. So I think that's something we should definitely remind ourselves as to how far he's come this season and how impressive he's been. Alex Albon, arguably one of the best drivers if not the best driver outside the top five teams at the moment in terms of his form it's just hard to notice that when he's in a Williams you look at his pace over the course of a race and he's ending up nearly scoring points at almost all of these races which is quite remarkable in the slowest car on the grid so no very solid shouts on there of course guys let us know your comments in uh, below regarding some of these questions I'm intrigued to get some of your thoughts relating to some of these predictions speaking of which Tom final part of the episode Normally, we ask our guests to provide a top three for this weekend and also one bold prediction. And it can be anything that you can think of that might be considered out of the ordinary, but somewhat possible. So uh, 
What are you going for this weekend in terms of a top three and a bold prediction, Tom? I wish I'd looked at the weather forecast now. Um, well, it I'm might assuming... rain a bit. So uh, I had heard that, which was giving me flashbacks towards what? Seb's victory 14 years ago in the Alpha Towery. So we might That's get something like, like that. You know looking at where Monza is and the time of year and the weather that's currently in Europe, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility there might be rain. So that's why I said, I wish I'd looked at the, at the weather forecast. So, yeah. Um, I'm going to go for, for Max Verstappen, Carlos Sainz, George Russell. Very, very. That's actually a pretty good prediction, to be fair. I want to be really bold and say, wouldn't it be nice if Seb Vettel, on his final Italian Grand Prix in Formula One, wins in the wet weather all those years after his first win in the Aston Martin? I mean, you certainly can't rule it out. I mean, the Alva Tauri probably wasn't that much quick. I mean, probably a little bit quick in the pecking order compared to what Aston Martin are, but it's a good race car, the Aston Martin. So, uh, well, in the rain, yeah. it ten- in the practice, it's gone okay. And then the qualifying sessions haven't quite worked out. But, you know, in Canada, for example. Yeah, that's true. We, we thought he was up there with Fernando. And then Fernando put it on the front row. And then uh, Vettel was nowhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, it's so hard to predict this year. I mean, I've gone for s- sort of sensational predictions, if you like. Why? Apart from Max. But, you know. No, that's... I, I think Carlos yeah. has been really good in the Ferrari. I think he's he's chipping away mm. doing good things anything uber bold that I can push you for no not really I mean that's really boring isn't it I, I definitely think we'll see Colton Herta racing and Pierre Gasly uh, move across so I think that's the, the sort of bold prediction I'll, but, ta- I'll take that we might get confirmation in Monza we don't know I know Helmut Marco and Christian Horner were pushing the FIA on this so we'll have to see we might get something by this weekend um, top three for me yeah I'm going to agree with you on that one I'm going to go Max first I'm going to go for Sir Lewis Hamilton in P2 and I think Charles Leclerc P3 I think Ferrari are going to need something to shout about so I think a podium under the circumstances is not what they'd be hoping for but I think given how this season has gone they probably would take it if it was offered to them and a bold prediction I really want to say Seb to have a stellar job in the wet, but I've kind of would contradict myself with my top three anyway. So uh, I'm going to say Fernando. Alpine on the front two rows. Maybe. Maybe. Well, they did um, in Canada. They were quite rapid in a straight line with that setup they had that kept Charles Leclerc back. So that's probably not a bad shout, actually. I think we'll do that one. Yeah. Alpine will be back in in and amongst it this weekend. Certainly on Saturday. Fernando on the front row for qualifying. Why not? I mean, it's Monza. I've seen Stranger Things. But no, that was fantastic, of course, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure and honour having you on the show. It's uh, just it's really, really nice to have people in your capacity come on this show. And uh, it's yeah, it just shows how some of our followers that have followed us for a while, all their support and all of their ongoing comments to keep us accountable when we make mistakes which is more often than you'd think sadly it's, it's nice to see that it's paying off for us so it's great to have you on but for the benefit of our listeners and of course if you're watching this on youtube as well where can they find you on the socials at tom gaymore g-a-y-m-o-r so i do a lot of twitter at tv talker on instagram but i'm 41 now and i'm not very cool so I'm not as prolific on Instagram as I am on Twitter. So, yeah, I tweet away and you can get hold of me there. And listen, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. I'm always a big believer in helping and, you know, supporting other people in their projects. And and what you're doing here, Adam's really good. And obviously, you've got your own viewers and they enjoy it as well. So, listen, I wish everyone the, uh, the best of seasons. 
and thanks for having me again yeah absolutely absolute pleasure to have you on tom of course if you are new to the channel guys you can subscribe to the channel and help us out in our ongoing chase to build a bigger bigger dnf1 family would absolutely love to have your board of room for every single one of you so get subscribed and of course like the video if you're enjoying it if you do enjoy us on your favorite audio platform whether it be spotify apple podcast or any other one that you listen to your favorite podcast on Give us a nice review if you think we're worthy. Five stars would be appreciated. But of course, if you don't think we're quite worthy of that, let us know why and we'll do what we can to improve the show for the future. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Please stay safe and enjoy the Italian Grand Prix this weekend. It's going to be a brilliant one. But we will see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And until then, just remember one thing. If you're not first, you're probably DNF1. Thanks very much and take care. Podcast Network.